Amen. Good morning. I'm Susie Bates, and I have a confession to make. I think it's a fun way to start out a sermon. I am really bad at small talk. Like, especially when you're meeting someone new, the kind of like polite, get to know you small talk. It really is my, it's just my fault. I'm an awkward person. And like the moment it, it's not clicking, I just get really awkward and I feel the awkwardness and then it's awkward and I'm awkward. Um, but that's just a confession that I have to make. And it's always those like, get to know you small talk conversations that get me because they kind of always go the same. You know, like if you're at a party or someplace where there's a lot of people that you don't know and you find yourself introducing yourself to a lot of different people. There's always a name exchange. Hey, I'm Susie. What's your name? Cool. And then I'm awkward. And then here comes the question that always comes next. So what do you do? Right? Like that's just what we always go to. It's kind of a lazy question. It's okay. It's our default when we're wanting to be polite. We don't know what to say. It's probably better than like, well, I don't really want to talk to you, so can you leave me alone? I want to stand over here by myself in this room full of people. So it's a good thing. But that question, man, we always think that we're getting to know someone by asking that. But I feel like that what someone does can sometimes actually be a distraction from getting to know who someone is. That's probably just my personal experience. I feel that a lot because what I do is I'm a pastor. And I usually try to avoid this question altogether because to a lot of people, for some reason, like I'm a pastor and that's really intimidating. It's like they think that we're supposed to be professional Christians. And so one of two things happens. They start to tell me like why they haven't been at church in a while. And they're not even like pulpit rock people. I'm like, no, please don't do that. It's... Like, honestly, if I didn't work here, I may have not been there on Sunday. Like, it's okay if you don't go to church. So they do that. Or sometimes what's even worse is I, like, sense a wall go right up. Because a lot of people have a preconceived notion about what a pastor is, and they attach me to that. That just makes me sad. Um, for a little while, I tried saying, like, maybe I shouldn't respond to that question with I'm a pastor. I'll just say, I work at our church. Like, maybe that's less intimidating. Like, who doesn't appreciate somebody who works at a church, right? So I tried that one time, and someone was like, oh, yeah, like a secretary? Or, and I was like, no, that backfired. Like, I didn't feel good about that. So I have to stop saying that. I don't know. My job is just weird, and it makes small talk weird. I was reading an article about the weirdest jobs in the world. Did you know that taste-testing dog food is a profession? Teenagers, you can make $40,000 a year tasting dog food. Which it makes sense because, like, the dogs don't really tell us whether they like it or not. I mean, I guess they can. They're like, this again? No. Um, you need a human to taste it to be like, hey, we're on to something here. <laughs> That's interesting. Imagine the get-to-know-you small talk with that person. It's like a name exchange. Hey, what do you do? I eat dog food. Well, I'm a pastor, so let's hang out. <laughs> Good company. <laughs> now, what we do can certainly help others get to know us. But it's sad how often it's assumed you're getting to know someone by learning what they do. My husband is an ER nurse, and this happens to him a lot. <laughs> it's funny how often a get-to-know-you conversation is happening, and um, it gets out that, oh, I'm an ER nurse. And a, and a perfect stranger 
will begin to, to talk about like their ailments that they're having. And like, I've seen this happen way too many times. They'll go in like detail, like I have this mole or wart on my back and I'm like, oh gosh, or I have this thing in my toe, you know, we, yikes, it's so funny. He has a great response for this. He genuinely does care. He's a good listener. He's a great nurse. And so he'll listen real intently. And especially if it gets kind of like off the rails about something, he'll be like, oh, and then listen a little bit more and kind of wait for the right moment, no matter what the ailment is. And he'll say, when was the last time you had a bowel movement? <laughs> Which is funny. But you know what's even funnier? 100% of the time a medical professional asks you that question, you answer it. They're like, well, this morning and yesterday morning, or like, well, it's been a few days. Like, it's hilarious. People will answer that question if you work in the medical field. So funny. He does that because most of the time, once they find out what he does, they're done getting to know him. They want some medical advice, which that's fair. I wonder if Jesus ever felt this way. He sure did a lot of things for a lot of people. I imagine he did feel that. I think we'll see a father navigate something like this really well today in our text. We're continuing our Mark series this morning. We'll be in Mark chapter 9, if you want to go ahead and flip there. And I love the movement that we have made towards self-reflection and owning our own spiritual journeys as we follow Jesus through Mark's account. We jump in today, right as Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming down from the mountain where they have just witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. No big deal. Moses and Elijah showed up. It was really awesome. But they're walking down from this experience back to reality, and no surprise, they walk right up to the teachers of the law and the disciples arguing about something. There's a crowd, and there's someone in need of, of healing from demon possession. This will be the last exorcism that Mark records in his book, and he actually includes more detail than Matthew or Luke's narration of this scene include, which I really appreciate. There's a lot here that Mark gives us. But even more than that, we'll see the shift that Jesus makes at this point in the book of Mark, where his miracles slow down, and we hear him talking more about the suffering servant and the fact that he is moving towards what will be the greatest miracle of all, dying on the cross and defeating death for all of us. We will see Jesus show less examples of what he can do and talk a lot more about who he is, the Messiah. Join me in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. And one of the details that Mark includes that the other gospel narratives do not is this question from Jesus. And I just love it. Jesus, all-knowing, omnipresent God who knows everything basically is recorded as walking up to this scene and being like, so what's going on here? 
like he doesn't already know exactly what's going on here. I think Mark includes this first question of Jesus just to stress his humanity, his compassion for us. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. This father right here, I believe, is the reason that Jesus asks, so what's going on here? Jesus wants to give this man room to express and share honestly. This is how our Jesus leads us. He knows, but he still wants to draw us out, so we'll open up to him. Jesus' question wasn't really directed to any specific person. He just asks it out loud to this crowd. And no wonder it's this father who speaks up. I can just imagine the heartbreak in this man's life as he steps up to answer this question to the one person who can do something about it. Teacher, I brought you my son. The humanity in that statement. Any parent in the room can put themselves in this man's shoes. Maybe from personal experience of laying your child down before Jesus begging him to intervene in their life. The father goes on to describe details of his son's condition, and we can almost hear the hopelessness in his voice as unbelief creeps in. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. In this father's mind, the disciples have met their match. They may have been able to cast out demons before, but they can't help in this situation. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus reads the hopelessness in this father's heart. This man is struggling for the life of his son, but now also for the existence of his own faith. And there's a crowd gathered here, as is the normal backdrop for Jesus these days. And you know they're all processing in similar ways. Jesus' disciples couldn't cast the demon out. Why? Will Jesus be able to? And we can just imagine how the focus of every person there is now on, what is Jesus able to do? And Jesus is frustrated by the persistent unbelief of the crowd for whom this father has just become the spokesperson for. But Jesus still calls for the boy to be brought to him. He still chooses to lean in here. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Again, we see Jesus asking questions of this father that we know full well Jesus knows the answers to. But Jesus continues to draw him out 
by asking, how long has the child been like this? This father has a moment to share his story, to engage with the details, with the hard truths of this very human story. His father says he's been like this with childhood. This demon is trying to kill him. If you can do anything, please have pity. Jesus repeats back, if I can, everything is possible for one who believes. And in this beautiful, honest, and vulnerable moment that Jesus has purposely created space for, the man can reply, honestly, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Can we just look at that statement for a minute? Do you see yourself in that like I see myself in it? Do specific circumstances kind of flood your mind and heart? This is an incredibly perfect expression of faith, incomplete as it may seem. And it should encourage those of us who want to follow and put our faith in Jesus. This father just expressed the most honest take on the difficulty of faith that you will find in the Bible. And Jesus accepts it and immediately casts out the demon and heals the boy. Did you know that Mark is the only gospel that records these details of this story? The other gospels leave out the second piece of dialogue between Jesus and this father and the statement that the father makes about belief. Why does Mark include it? One commentator explains it this way. For Mark, the significance of Jesus cannot be fully conveyed by what he does, but only by who he is. One can be amazed by a miracle, but one can only trust and believe a person. I think what Mark wants us to understand is that the kind of faith that God requires needs to be rooted in who Jesus is, not in what he can do. And I think this father realizes that. When Jesus responds with, if I can, anything is possible for those who believe. The father says, I do believe. I think the father is admitting, I do believe you can, Jesus. When he says, help me overcome my unbelief, I think this father is admitting, I don't know who you are. Help me know who you are. I need to know you're who you say you are, Jesus, because my circumstances, I'm drowning in them. Who are you? That's a deeper level. And this father needs a deeper relationship. His heart, just like all of our hearts, longs to be able to answer the question that Jesus asks us. Who do you say that I am? It's a much deeper question than what do you say I can do? Now, things God does can certainly be catalysts in our faith. But you see the problem with that, right? It only works when he's doing what we want him to do. What happens when he doesn't act when we want him to? What happens when he doesn't act how we want him to? We doubt. We hurt. Or become bitter. We wrestle with our faith. Or worse, we just walk away from it. And we stop talking to Jesus about these things. 
Well, that's misplaced faith. That's why it crumbles. How often do we see this in our own lives or the lives of those around us? Faith being shaken by what God does or doesn't do. When we do that, we're only showing our hand, revealing that our faith wasn't actually in God to begin with. It was in what he can do. And what he can do can really distract us from who he is. Focusing on what he can do and reflecting on why he did or didn't do something in our life will cause us to miss what Jesus is actually trying to show us. Who he is. Even when we have the best of intentions, we do this. And we see this misplaced focus present in the disciples too. As Mark wraps up this story, we find Jesus in a private conversation with them about the events that had just transpired. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. I love that Mark includes this moment because I can so relate. I have had many private conversations like this with Jesus after feeling like he left me hanging, especially in a scene involving public leadership like this. Except I have like a list of questions and I sound a lot angrier than the disciples did here. I'm like, why couldn't I drive it out? Why am I even here? Why did you call me to this? Why didn't you do what I asked? Where were you when I was totally failing? Why didn't you step in sooner? If you'd be more clear, I'd probably misunderstand you less. Again, the focus is on what God is doing, not on who he is. Jesus' response to the disciples that calls them to prayer is reinforcing this issue of misplaced faith. Jesus is reminding them it's not about what you can or can't do or what I can or can't do. There's not a formula that gets me to do whatever you want. I want you to know me. And prayer is a way to stay connected to me in fellowship. And that's where the power is. It wasn't like this was a specific breed of demon that required prayer to be exercised. It wasn't like a mutated version of the flu that needed like a specific vaccination. Jesus didn't pray before healing this boy. He wasn't literally laying out a formula for this healing. He was calling his disciples to the real faith that he calls all of us to. And prayer is a big part of that, of getting to know God so we can actually put our faith in him. And prayer is really complicated. It is for me anyway. I am all over the place with prayer. I've prayed with more belief that I've ever had in my life for a person lying brain dead in a hospital bed to be healed and get up. And nothing happened. I've cried out to Jesus for the teen suicides in our county to stop, believing with all of my heart that if I call on my Jesus to stop this, he's going to do it. They haven't stopped. I've prayed many seasons in my life. God, help me with my unbelief. My shallow heart has prayed for a close parking place at Costco. 
there was a Sunday this December that there was a big snowstorm predicted, and I was up to preach, and I prayed that church would get canceled. <laughs> the snowstorm was like six hours late, and I had to preach that morning. <laughs> I'm all over the place with prayer. I've prayed, God, please give me the chance to pray over others because my heart is so full of your heart for these people that I'll just explode if I don't get the chance. Give me the chance to pray. And I have prayed, God, if you let one person call on me to pray publicly right now, I am gonna die because my heart is filled with nothing but sarcasm and no one wants to hear that prayer. I'm all over the place. Prayer is so confusing. Prayer is our lifeline. It's the lifeline for a brand new believer speaking to God for the first time. And it's the lifeline for the most devout follower of Jesus. Because we are never finished with our fight for faith. As Thomas said last week, Jesus' face changes as we walk with him and learn more about him. Just when we think we've learned all there is to know, he wants to show us something else. No matter how good we can get at this faith journey, no matter how well we think we have come to know him, there's always more about himself that he wants to show us. And just when we think we've got something figured out and we know him well enough to pinpoint a formula about why he does or doesn't do things, he dumps everything out, makes us start all over. Because he didn't come to us so we'd know what he can do for us came to us so we could know him. Focusing on what he does can distract us from who he is. The stories in the text today hold a lot for us. We see this father who is desperate for his child and who is really wrestling to place his faith in Jesus and not in the circumstances surrounding him and his son. And we see this honest attempt at him engaging with Jesus over all of it in this form of like a short Hail Mary type prayer. I do believe. Help my unbelief. And we see Jesus immediately respond. We see leaders who are trying so hard just to be good, effective leaders and do the things that Jesus taught them to do. And just when they hit a stride in leadership, Jesus leads them to something they can't do on their own. So they'll keep their focus on him, not on what they can or can't do. Jesus reminds them, you have to pray to stay connected to me. We're not formulas, and neither is our God. We're stories, and I think Jesus challenges us to fall in love with stories faster than we tend to fall in love with formulas. Stories are messy, and they don't always add up. They hold so much more. All of the stories of Jesus in the Bible are not just stories about what Jesus can do. They're stories that show us who Jesus is. The text for today ends with Jesus telling the disciples how important prayer is. Because prayer is a conversation that keeps our faith alive. Could I invite us this morning to evaluate our prayer lives? Are you interacting with God over where you've placed your belief? Is your belief in what God does? It's easy to do. Or is your belief in who he is? 
Are you interacting with God over who you are, over who you're becoming? When we do not reflect on our life with God through prayer, our faith has a really hard time growing. So I'd like for us to end our time together this morning with some room for prayer. And we're given this really beautiful model for prayer in our text today. I encourage you to borrow it. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe you know you've been placing your belief in what God does or doesn't do, and you're ready to place your belief in who God is. Maybe you can't find the words to pray, and you need someone to pray for you. We're going to have people on the sides with tags. I encourage you, if you need prayer, take those few steps over there and have someone pray over you. Let's create some space to interact with God. Let the Spirit lead. Because I'll just be really honest here. This prayer, I do believe, help my unbelief. If that's not the cry of each of our hearts, I'm, I'm not real sure what we're doing here this morning. That's all of us. That's either been true in your life in the past, it's true today, or it's going to be true next week. Like, we have all been there. I believe that when we bring a gutsy prayer like that to God... That's a prayer he's going to answer. Let's follow this father's lead this morning, how he stepped out of the crowd and said, Teacher, I brought you my son. Talk to God this morning. God, I brought you. He knows, but he wants to draw you out. Engage with him. There's nothing magic about lighting a candle or writing a prayer in our prayer walls. But there is something about physically moving from your seat in times like this, changing your posture, sharing those details of your story with God. Grab a friend to talk to if you need to. I'm gonna invite everyone to stand. It makes it a little easier for us to be courageous and move around. If you would stand with me. I encourage you to resist what is so easy to do at church to just sit back and be a spectator? Would you lean in and engage in a tangible way? And when we get going here, if you need to sit back down and close your eyes and pray or do whatever, please have the freedom. Bring your heart to God. Search for his heart. I believe he wants to show his face to us this morning. Let's give him some space.